Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Scripture will be taken from Psalm 103, verses 11 through 18. We'll be reading from the New King James Version. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As the father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, So he flourishes, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. Please be seated. If you'd like an outline of today's sermon, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11 in just a couple of minutes. Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. It's wonderful to see you. If you have your father still living, I know that you've already expressed a happy Father's Day to him. And if you do not, just know that our hearts are with you and we appreciate what you uh, go through and you still grieve his loss and It's a wonderful day to think about fathers. God's blessed us with a beautiful day. I woke up and did my two miles today. Somebody asked me the other day if I'm running those two miles. I laughed at that. I'm not running those two miles, but I walk very, very steadily and uh, mostly upright. And today it was 64 degrees, a beautiful, beautiful day and uh, just uh, wonderful. And what a great day to worship God. You might assume that I was going to talk about fathers today, and I am. We have this joke about, among preachers about on Mother's Day, how we say wonderful things about mothers, and on Father's Day, we really come down hard on fathers. I'm not going to do that. I, I got to thinking about in preparing this lesson, it occurred to me that we have great fathers in this church. I, I'm not going to start naming them because... I would have to just go on and on, and we just are so blessed with men who I am going to be describing today from Luke chapter 15. When you say, this this is a great father, what definition would you put to that? what, What kind of qualities would you say characterize a man who's really a great father? Well, I would say we've got that description by implication here. Now, in the scripture, you have over and over again occasions where God and our earthly fathers are compared. What what comes to your mind when I say that? Well, Psalm 103, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him because he knows our frame and he remembers that we're dust. And aren't you thankful for that? When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he started this way, our father which art in heaven. Oh, you know what? That's That's a remarkable and wonderful reality that that would be how he would want us to address him. And so it's not, it's not wasted. I mean, it's used over and over again. You have Hebrews chapter 12. And we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. 
Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? What's he doing? He's saying, you know what? Your, your dad is, or your, your, your God is like your dad in these ways. It's a wonderful, amazing comparison. And to be able to pray and to call him our Father is just awesome. And then we get to Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. It is the favorite parable. Surely if we took a poll and asked people across the board what their favorite parable was, it would be this one. It's because it's about home, it's about family, it's about, it's about forgiveness. It's about a father. Now, the essence of the parable, the reason for the parable isn't necessarily to preach about Father's Day. I think it's applicable, but the the main thing that's happening in the first couple of verses of Luke 15 is that the Pharisees and Sadducees see Jesus showing compassion to the publicans and sinners, and they can't stand it. They just, they can't stand it. And Jesus gives three parables, a lost coin, a lost lost sheep, a lost boy. Now, it wasn't hard for the, the people, these Jews, these Jewish leaders to to appreciate that if you lost 20 or 10 coins, you'd seek that, search that out and find it. If, you, if a man who is a shepherd lost one of his sheep, that, they understood that. Makes sense that you'd go and seek and find it. But the lost boy, mm, they were struggling, really struggling with Jesus calling out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the fact that those people, those publicans and sinners were responding to the teachings of Jesus. And so you have this discussion about the prodigal. It will be important as we go through this, I think, not to picture a small boy. Don't, don't do that. I, I, would, I would think that the, the, the things that we have, to, the descriptions here would more characterize a young man, a man who's 19 or 20 or 22 years old. He's somebody who could go into not a close, he could go to a faraway country. He was capable of making that kind of journey and getting there successfully. And he did his business there, even though it was bad but he did. He took his father's money, and you know how that goes. I'm just saying that, that it'll, be, it'll make more sense to you if you don't picture a small boy. It wasn't a smart, small boy. It was a, it was a young man. And he said a certain man had two sons. Stop. You know what? If you have two children, you already know something about fatherhood and about how that children are different. I don't really understand it. I know that Cindy and I have two children, and they're very different. I love them both the same, but they're very different. It's like Matthew 21 and verse 28, and a certain man had two sons, and he said to the first one, go work in my vineyard. And that first son said, I will not, but later he repented and went. And the second one, when told the same thing, said, I will go, but then he wouldn't go. They're different. And that's what you have in Luke 15. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. He went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave to him. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say, father, I've sinned against heaven and before, before thee, I'm no more worthy to be called your son, make me as one of your hired servants. 
Rand came to his father, but when his father was a far way off, he saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat because this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to be merry. I want to bring from this parable four observations about great dads. And they are, I just want to say from the get-go that these are applicable, so applicable to the great fathers in this church. I'm not schmoozing you. I'm just saying that's the truth. It's the very truth. What kind of qualities do you see in this dad? Now, you, you bear in mind again that the dad, the father in this parable is representative of God. God's the one. He's teaching us, Jesus teaching us about the kind of compassion that God has. All right, so what qualities do you see? The first one is that a great father is one who knows how to keep locks on the doors. Here's something that's implied by the text. It's that this son knows that if he wants to live like this, and his older brother's going to say in a few minutes in the text, he's going to say, you know, he spends the money with harlots. I don't know all that's involved in that. But I know that you've got this understanding in that house that this young man, he may be 20 years old, he's a young man, he understands something. If I'm going to live like this, I I surely can't do this in my father's house. My father's never going to allow this. He's a man of principle. He's a righteous man. He's not going to let me do this in his house. And it was true. I suppose the man could have, the father could have taken different approaches to this. He could have argued, for example, that kids are going to be kids, and they're going to sow their wild wild oats, and I did when I was 20 years old, and that's how it's going to be, and so, of course, I'm going to just, whatever, you know, but that's not how it was. The young man knew that if he was going to live like this, he couldn't do it there. You can't, you can imagine, can't you? You can use your imagination. He comes to his dad, and he says, I have some women I'd like to sleep with and bring them to the house. Is that okay? And the answer is, it would never be okay. I've sort of picked up a drinking habit. Dad, I'd like to, to bring it home with me. Now, you know what? I'm not going to prove that, and you're not going to bring it in the house. We're not going to do that here. Jesus lives in our house, right? We're not going to do that here. He could have said, kids are going to be kids. Or, or he might have argued it in his mind this way, that, that I don't want him to live like that, but if he's going to live like that, it would be better for him to do it under my roof where I can keep an eye on him. At least it's safer that way. No, that wasn't it either. He didn't want his son to leave. He wanted him back. But that wasn't going to be it either. The the fact is, if you want to live like that, you can't live at my house. Now, think about this with me. When you go back to the Passover feast, I mean, when it started, you have the ten plagues brought on Egypt. Water turned to blood, frogs, lice, flies, Miranda the cattle, boils, hell, locust, darkness, and the death of the firstborn. When you get to the end, and God institutes the Passover feast... And all that went into it and the hyssop and the blood on the lentils and the doorpost. There were preparations to be made. Now, do you remember that all the leaven was to be swept out of the houses? It is interesting to me the degree to which this seemingly arbitrary command is made. All of it. So here's, here's Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 15. Can you bring that? There we are. Seven days... You shall eat unleavened bread. Now, this is prep for the Passover, all right? God's going to come over, and and, uh, if he sees the blood, if I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
there to prepare for this. They're going to make this mighty exodus out of Egypt. On the first day, you shall remove leaven. You know what leaven is, don't you? It's, it's yeast. It's, I, I, happen to know, I know a lot about this because my wife just bakes bread all the time, and she's been doing it for many years. And so the yeast is, you, you put it in a, you know, you put it in a lump of dough, yeast, leaven, and I'm, in the morning, you know, it's going to be probably four times the size. It's yeast. Okay, so God says, in prep for this Passover, I want you to sweep it all out of your house. And if you say, I don't get it, I don't know why that, I don't, you, that's right, you, you don't, and that you wouldn't. And I don't think they understood it. It seemed wholly and completely arbitrary. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. I'm telling you, God was really serious about this. Now drop down to verse 19. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. Now chapter 13 and verse 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall, you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. It wasn't until later. I mean, you look at this and you say, it seems so abstract. Why? why? I mean, we're preparing for the Passover. Why? Does leaven have anything to do? Why does yeast have anything to do with this? Until you get to the New Testament. And you get to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 6. And Jesus said to his disciples, You beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Wait, hold it now. Wait. Now there's a light bulb, right? Because... It's representative of sin. And there's, there's this nature of sin that if you want to, to be successful, the best thing to do is quench it when it's a very infant stage, when it's very small, because it's like yeast. And you start listening to these Pharisees and Sadducees, the things they're pressing, and then you let that grow inside of you, and it will grow. You better be aware of that. That's very dangerous. Or, or perhaps the, the clearest one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and about verse 7 and 8. And he's talking, you have a man of the church there who's living with another woman to whom he's not married. And this is, this is about how the church is to deal with that. He's living in sin with this woman. And there's a danger in the church. And Paul says, your glorying is not good because they were just letting this go on like it was nothing. They were ignoring it. And he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then we, then we go, you understand that, don't you? You let this go in the church and, and you act like it's nothing. And what there ought to be is some recognition that, that this is not right. And we're part of a family and we hold each other accountable. And the little leaven there is that, that this is some kind of sin that can really grow. And I declare to you that, that it's just true in churches. It is so true in churches. But then you have this one. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And you see that when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he took bread. And what bread was it? Well, it was the Passover feast. We know from Exodus in these passages that we read that, that what Jesus did when he instituted the Lord's Supper is use, are you ready for this, unleavened bread. And the significance is that as we ate the unleavened bread this morning and we examined ourselves, we swept our hearts of the leaven, of the, of the sin, of the sometimes in its infant stage, but whatever it was, we recognize again the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus and all that it means and what he did so that we could be saved. We sweep our hearts of the leaven. 
And that's, that's in that unleavened bread. That's the point. It doesn't make any sense that we would come together like this and do that. And worship to God. We eat the unleavened bread and we sweep our hearts of the leaven. And that we would still let it live in our homes. It doesn't make any sense. And so here, here you have this biblical lesson that's, that's applicable this morning in this assembly, but it started way back in Exodus chapter 12, that principle about leaven. So what you have in the parable of the prodigal is, is a father who's like that. That's how he is. He's, that the boy didn't come to his dad and say, I want to bring these women home with me. What do you say? Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? He's not going to say that. He already knows the answer. He grew up with the man. So there's principle here. There's a matter of righteousness and principle that's just very impressive. Now, here's the second. And I I know that's true about fathers in this room. Now, here's the second thing that you know about him. Is that he keeps the table furnished. So the the son, and now now he's penniless. He's wasted his father's substance with this sinful living. And now he's thinking about what he's going to do. He's trying to feed the swine, but, but he can't stand to eat that. And then he reasons this way. The servants in my dad's house have enough bread and to spare. And to spare. You know what? My, my father is a good... What do you know about? He's a good man. Now, see, this isn't always how it is. You have this warning in James chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, you rich men... Weep and howl for your miseries that are to come upon you. And then he says, why? He says, because the the, the laborers in your fields cry out because you've defrauded them. You hired them, but you did not pay them. And now look at you. Look at you. You're you're rich. You're increased with all of these goods, but you got it by fraud. And there are terrible things in your future as a result of this. This has not gone unnoticed by the Lord. That wasn't how it was. You know, that's not the kind of language that is used by the prodigal. When he's thinking about back at home, he says, the servants of my father's house, get it, have bread enough and to spare. Let me tell you something about a great father. It's not just about that number one point. It's not just about that he's a man of principles about right and wrong. Oh, he is that. He, he is that because this, he's, he has a fiduciary duty in that house. That house belongs to God. That is, that's God's. And he's the leader of that home. And so there's going to be principles about what can't come into that house. I know that the liberal mentality would just really push back against that. The very idea that he would presume to have this kind of position. But God put him in this position. He's a dad. He's a father. But the second point, I'm telling you, has to come right along with it. If you talk about a great father, it's this one. Let's just make some, some applications of this principle. So, it's in how the father's, father is, uh, treats uh, elderly people with kindness and help. How does he treat old people? How, how, does he, how does he do that? So, James chapter 1 and 27 says, Pure religion, undefiled before God the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. It would be about how he treats people he doesn't know how he would treat strangers in Galatians 6 and verse 10. Do good unto all men, especially to them of the household of faith. How's a man like that? What about a father? You reckon your children don't have little recording devices going on in their heads all the time and when they watch you and they see you and how do you treat people 
Are you, you treat people with kindness who you don't even know? Are you helpful? That's, that's what, that would be a characteristic of a man who is a great father. It's about how he treats women to whom he's not married. And 1 Timothy 5 and verse 2 says that, that he treats the older women like mothers and the younger women like sisters. I like that. He, he's, he's respectful of the fact that he's married to those kids' mama, right? He doesn't look on a woman to lust after her, Matthew 5 by 28, because he loves and cares for and is devoted to their mother. It's about how he treats his enemies. And so Matthew 5 and verse 44, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. And don't you think that when your children recognize there's somebody out there who is your enemy, that you're different? The very idea that your kids could listen to you and hear you pray for that man or hear you pray for that woman is rather remarkable, don't you think? It's not just about the principle that I won't let evil live at this house. We can't, I want, you know, I, I hope you won't live like that. But if you choose to live like that, you can't bring it into this house. You can't do that. And by the way, a lot of people are dealing with this right now in their families in reference to homosexuality and whether or not that can go on in our house. Can we do that? And the answer is that the father says no, but it's, but it's undergirded with this kind of a heart. I love, I love what Jesus loves, and this is the way that Jesus wants me to treat people. And when that prodigal was thinking about his terrible circumstance, he said about his father, the servants have bread enough and to spare. That's the kind of man he is. See, that's the kind of man he is. All right, now here's number three. He keeps a light on for you, for his children. This is, a, this, is a, this is probably my favorite point of this discussion, of these observations about what kind of dad he is, because, because what you have here is a, is a mingling. It's not like oil and water of of righteousness and compassion. And why is it that we love the parable of the prodigal son? It's not because, I don't think it's because the the father was strict with his boys or that he was a righteous man. I think, I mean, it's that, but the bigger thing is that it's about compassion. It's about what happens when the prodigal comes home, that we're drawn to that. We are. But what you have is this, this meshing, and you have this picture that you could pull together the two things. You can have the righteousness and this wonderful compassion. So the son comes home. He, he knows of his father's principles. What he doesn't know is how far the compassion will reach. So he prepares this speech. I, I've... Uh, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Oh, wait, wait a minute. How did he know that? How did the prodigal son know that he had sinned against heaven? And the answer, obviously, is that his dad taught him that when you live like this, when you make these kinds of bad choices, you're not just sinning against me. It's a bigger thing than that. You're sinning against God. This boy grew up understanding that, and so when he comes home, he says, I've sinned against I did that. I've done that, and I've sinned against you. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. And I suppose that's true. I suppose that statement's true too. But it doesn't take into account the compassion, the mercy of the Father. 
What is further interesting is that when the, the young man starts the speech, he gets home and, he, and his father runs to him and he embraces him and he starts kissing him. Wouldn't it have been a good time for the son to say, wait, <laughs> this is great. I don't need to make the speech. I don't, need to, I don't need to go into that to make me as one of your hired servants. It looks like I'm back in. This is great. Oop, hold back. He didn't, he didn't interpret the hug and the kisses from his dad to indicate that the dad's principles were pushed aside. No, the, the righteousness is still there. It's still there. And so he makes the speech. I'm, no worthy, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And, and then, the, then this point, that now we're to the point, is that the righteousness and the compassion, the mercy, are not mutually exclusive. What, what they are is, is perfectly joined together in this parable. That's why we love it. That's why we love it. Bring a robe and put it on him and shoes on his feet and ring on his hand and bring the, the fatted calf and we're going to celebrate because my son was dead and he's alive again. Here's Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. And it, I think it probably well describes, let's go to the next slide. It well describes what's going on here. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Here's number four. This dad knows when it's the right time to celebrate. So he has this party. So, so he invites these friends and there's, there's just this celebration. And, and you remember the discussion with the elder brother and that's a different sermon. That's a different time. But, but right now, just appreciate this. He, he knew how to rejoice about the right things. Did you ever tell a, tell a joke and people laugh at the wrong time? This is kind of a higher level than that. It's, it's that it's possible that, that with our children, we get our rejoicing out of place. It's not lined up right. It isn't a wrong thing to rejoice over our children's temporal successes, their accomplishments. It's just a very natural and wonderful thing, and of course we're going to do that. But how does that balance out with how we celebrate over their their spiritual accomplishments. What I want to show you is part of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is that love does not rejoice in iniquity, it rejoices in the truth. I think we've got that. But I would say that, that when we rejoice over their scholastic successive, that, that's a good thing, and maybe, I don't know, maybe other kinds of outstanding qualities that they've developed, that's a terrific thing. But how are we doing about rejoicing over spiritual things? This is when the father celebrated. It wasn't just the physical. I know that because he said, this my son was lost and he's found. He, he was dead. He's alive again. Can I parenthetically note with you that the father didn't, he had servants, but he didn't send the servants to the faraway country to find the boy and hog tie him and put him in the truck and bring him back. Why didn't he do that? He could have done that. And maybe, maybe when the boy was tied up, you could put him in a chair and you could have a celebration because he's home. Mm, yeah, I don't know. You wouldn't do that. You, you wouldn't. What good would that be? It wasn't. No. But, but what you celebrate over is the fact that he's come home and he's repented. You know what? I'm not going to live like that anymore. I, I, I paid a bitter price and I learned my lesson. A terrible price. And, and um, the father takes him back. I want to celebrate. And we do in this church. We do. And so when our, when our children... 
go to Naoti and they have accomplishments that are spiritual, we're going to rejoice over that. We are. When we have Bible Bowl and our kids make accomplishments, we're going to rejoice over that. We're, we're going to make it to do. And last to leaders, what we say is what gets rewarded gets repeated. And so what we're going to do with our young people is, is have a night every year and we're going to talk about the good things that they did and their accomplishments and aren't we thankful for them and proud of them. It's not wrong to, to brag about their accomplishments that are temporal. I just have to remember that those things are going to evaporate. What's going to last are the spiritual things. Let's just keep it straight. I just think it's interesting that what you have here is that a father who knows when, when to celebrate. In this church, we have great fathers. I, I just consider that such a great blessing. It's not a surprise, really, because this is a church of people who love Jesus. And we conform to his image. We conform to his teaching of the New Testament. And when you think about parenting, that's of major impact. And it makes great dads. And I'm thankful for you. Now, it may be that there's someone here who hasn't obeyed the gospel. And I would just, I would just say this to you. Uh, in, in reference to parenting, in reference to other ways too, though, you, you can't lead where you will not go. You need to obey the gospel. I want and you want the young people around you to have wonderful lives and then to go to heaven when they die. I want your kids and other people's kids to, to be able to train the next generation to be what God wants them to be, to please Him. You need to obey the gospel to be that kind of influence in their lives, to repent of your sins and confess Jesus and be baptized. And the Bible says when you do that, that your sins are forgiven and you walk in newness of life and He adds you to His church. Now would be a great time to do that. If you need the prayers of Christians, we would be so happy to do that with you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.